Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. All right. Good morning. So the Advent season has arrived, and I am calling this year's Advent series, When the Word Became Flesh, because that is what Christmas is all about, right? It's about celebrating the moment when, as the opening of John's gospel puts it, the Word became flesh. Now, what does that mean? I know that that word, word, can be a little bit confusing. Uh, Sometimes I wish that the translators just left it untranslated in its Greek form as logos. Uh, Logos is a term from Greek philosophy. means something like the wisdom that generates and sustains the cosmos. The way that I like to put it is the mystery that generates and sustains reality, right? Fundamental question that every human being at some time wonders about is where did this all come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? What keeps it all going? What is the point? And the Greeks had a word for that. It was logos, the mystery that generates and sustains reality. Part of what it means to be a Christian is to be someone mystery that generates and sustains reality can be known personally, as a person. Now, that is not an entirely unique belief. There are religions that claim, besides Christianity, that there's a God who can be known, right? But the Christian faith is unique in that it goes a step further. Our faith says not only the mystery behind all of this, Um, Not only can that mystery be known, but that mystery became a human being, took on flesh. The mystery that generates and sustains reality became a human being, the person that we call Jesus Christ. And throughout this month, we're going to be considering what the Bible reveals about when the word became flesh. And the question I want us to think about is, what can we learn about God from the way that God chose to come into the world? What can we learn about God from the way that God chose to come into the world? And the aspect of when the word became flesh that I want us to consider this morning is Jesus's genealogy according to the Gospel of Matthew. So if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to Matthew right at the very beginning chapter 1. Let me uh, pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for this special time of year that reminds us of the miracle of your incarnation. And Lord, right now, we just want to give our full attention to you. We want to be open to whatever your Holy Spirit wants to say to us. So give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. And all God's people said, amen. All right, so Gospel of Matthew, opening chapter is genealogy. 
Because Matthew wants us to know that when God took on flesh, he did not just materialize out of thin air, right? Presumably God could have done that, but that's not what he did. He did not just appear as a full-grown man, right? He came into the world as a child with a family tree. He took on flesh with a history, we might say. He took on flesh with a biological ancestry through his mother and with a legal ancestry through his adoptive father, Joseph. He was not biologically the son of Joseph, but he was legally the son of Joseph. And so legally, Joseph's ancestry belonged to him. And at the start of Matthew's gospel, he presents us with a legal ancestry, and it begins, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, this whole genealogy, uh, for most of us, it will probably just be a bunch of names on a page, but I'm going to read part of it because there's something important that I want us to notice. So, here we go. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Any people who might be parents soon, take note, some good biblical names there, right? Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. All right, stop there. Even if you know nothing about any of the names that I just read, you might have noticed something interesting about that genealogy. Any ideas? They all, okay, you're on the right track. Um, was, did I hear something else? The women. the women. Thank you, Carolyn. So Sam was on the right track there, right, in that, they all had sons, which means genealogies go through the father, right? The father has a son, has a son, has a son, has a son. That is the way that uh, ancestries were recorded back then. But this genealogy includes four women, right? It says, whose mother was Whose mother was Rahab? whose mother was Ruth, and whose mother had been four women are listed here. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and if you know the story, you know that the name of that last woman, who's simply referred to as Uriah's wife, is Bathsheba. So why does Matthew include these four women in Jesus' legal ancestry. 
Why does he do that? Is he just trying to be progressive for the time and include women? It's an interesting idea, but it doesn't really because if he was going to include women, why wouldn't he say that Sarah was the mother of Isaac or that Leah was the mother of Judah or that um, Rebecca was the mother of Jacob? I think I got that right. Why, why not include those women, right? He doesn't include those women. So it can't just be that he's like just trying to be progressive for the sake of uh, including women, right? Um, what is the goal here? Why specifically choose to highlight Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? Well, to answer that question, we have to know a little bit about the stories of these four women. And uh, that is a little tricky because they aren't exactly family friendly. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to do my best to keep this PG and speak kind of euphemistically. Okay. Um, so first, uh, Tamar. Okay. Uh, Tamar's story can be found in Genesis chapter 38. So you can read it in all its grisly glory. Um, later if you want to. Uh, she is most likely a Canaanite woman who married a descendant of Israel. Uh, her first husband died before she had any children. And then, as was the custom for widows at the time, she married her brother-in-law. Kind of an uncomfortable rule, but the rule was that if your husband died in order that you would be provided for and still have children, your brother-in-law was supposed to marry you. But he also died before she had any children. She really wanted to have children. And so uh, she disguised herself as a woman of ill repute to trick her father-in-law into continuing the family line through her. Are we uncomfortable? All right, so that's Tamar. So next is Rahab. And her story can be found in the book of Joshua, chapters 2 and 6. Rahab was definitely a Canaanite woman. She lived in Jericho. And she was a woman of ill repute. And some even say that she was the manager of a house of ill repute. And one day, some Israelite spies came to investigate Jericho. And when they did, Rahab hid them. She protected them, sheltered them. And uh, she did that because she believed that the true God was Israel. And uh, so she, after that, she converted and uh, she married an Israelite and became the mother of Boaz. Which then brings us to the third woman, Ruth. Uh, Ruth actually married Rahab's son, Boaz. Bef before she married Boaz, she was married to somebody else. Uh, Ruth's story can be found in, wait for it, the book of Ruth. Um, and... Uh, 
Her story will not sound anywhere near as scandalous to our ears as Tamar and Rahab's. Ruth grew up in the land of Moab. She was a Moabite. And uh, even though she was a Moabite, she married an Israelite man because there was an Israelite family that needed to leave Bethlehem because there was a famine. And so they went to the land of Moab. It was a, uh, uh, a father and a mother. The mother's name was Naomi and their two boys. And they were there for 10 years. The two boys married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. Um, and then tragedy struck the family. And the husband died, and then both of the sons died. And so that left Naomi, this Israelite woman, who had gone to Moab in, or in order to find food and survive, right, with no family except for two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And she decided, well, I'm going to go back to, to the land of Judah, to Bethlehem. And she said to her daughter-in-laws, you know what, you, you, you two are still young. You should go back to the household of your family. You know, find husbands from your own people. And I am in sorrow going to go back to the land of my people. Uh, but Ruth was adamant that she did not want to leave Naomi. She loved her mother-in-law and she wanted to stick by her. And so she came back to the land of Israel, this, this Moabite woman, uh, with Naomi. And while she was back in Israel, she eventually found a man to marry, Boaz, the son of Rahab. And then through Ruth, the Messianic line continued. And actually, Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. So she plays a very important part in... Uh... Okay. Now, said that none of that story uh, sounds scandalous to our ears at all. And it shouldn't. But for the people of Israel, the story of Ruth was a bit scandalous because Ruth was a Moabite. And Israelites did not think highly of Moabites. They understood Moabites to be the descendants of an incestuous relationship between a man named Lot and his daughters. Moabites were thought of as people descended from grotesque sin, and they were a people who worshipped false gods and had all kinds of detestable practices. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 23.3, Moses said, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord. No Moabites allowed in the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. And yet Ruth, a Moabite, is in the genealogy just three generations before King David. And just four generations before King Solomon, right, who is the one that built the temple of the Lord. In Jerusalem. Now, I should mention, some people say, well, there's tension between what Moses said and with Ruth because they, they would say Ruth's child wouldn't have been thought of as a Moabite. Yes, Ruth would be thought of as a Moabite, but her child would not because the line was traced through the father, and the father was an Israelite. That may be true, but even if it is, Surely it does not remove the scandal of a Moabite woman 
being so closely related to King David. These were people who were considered unfit to enter the assembly of the Lord up to the 10th generation. People descended from grotesque sin, and yet of the first generation is King David's great-grandmother. And finally, there is the fourth woman, Bathsheba. But in the genealogy, she is just called Uriah's wife. And you can find her story in 2 Samuel 11-12 and 1 Kings 1 and 2. Why is she called Uriah's wife? Well, because we are being reminded that King David committed adultery with her. She was Uriah's wife. But King David noticed her. He decided he wanted her. And he sent messengers to bring her to him. Shortly afterward, Bathsheba told David that she was pregnant. And David didn't want her husband to find out. So he had him sent into the front lines of battle, right? Because the king can decide where you go on the battle lines. Where he knew that Uriah would die. And Uriah did die. And then David married Bathsheba. So David abused his royal power, right? First to take Bathsheba and then to kill Uriah. So those two words in the genealogy, Uriah's wife, remind us of David's shameful behavior. And yet, it is through this union of David and Bathsheba that Solomon is born, and the line of the Messiah continues. All right, so, four women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We've looked at their stories. So what do these four women have in common? Is it that they were all exceptionally sinful? That doesn't quite work, right? Uh, maybe we could make that case for Rahab, maybe for Tamar, but definitely not Ruth. Right? Ruth was incredibly faithful and turned to Israel's God and stuck by her mother-in-law. And Bathsheba, I mean, Bathsheba was sinned against. Far more than she was a sinner, right? So that explanation doesn't really unite the four of them. Could it be that they're all foreign? All foreign women. Well, we can be confident that Rahab and Ruth are foreign. Rahab was definitely a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabite. Tamar might have been a Canaanite, but we don't know for sure. And Bathsheba, even though she was married to a Hittite, her father had an Israelite name. So she was probably an Israelite by blood. So we can't say that they're all foreign. So what is it then? What do these women have in common? Well, here's what I think. Okay, it's my theory. I think Matthew makes it a point to mention them because he knows that many of his contemporaries would feel embarrassed about having them in their family tree. Many families have people or events in their histories that they would rather not talk about. Parts of their family trees that they would prefer to cross out and pretend that they don't exist. You know? 
We don't talk about Bruno. Matthew knows his contemporaries, the stories of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba are examples of that. They hear Rahab. What did they think? Prostitute. Ruth, Moabite. Bathsheba, that is a reminder of adultery and murder in the family tree. And Tamar, well, do I need to repeat that? I mean, that is a real Jerry Springer situation right there, right? <laughs> the mention of these names in the family tree would have shame and embarrassment. And yet Matthew goes out of his way right? He doesn't have to mention them. He doesn't need to put them in the genealogy. All he needs to do is mention the fathers, because that's the way genealogies worked back then. But he makes it a point to say their names. Unnecessary, but he did it. And he did it because he knew some people are going to be uncomfortable with these names when they're reminded of them. And yet Matthew said, I'm going to emphasize that Jesus the Messiah, the Word made flesh, has these people and these situations in his lineage. Foreigners, sinners, people who were sinned against, adultery, deceit, murder, incest. So what is Matthew telling us about Jesus? He's telling us that Jesus, the Word made flesh, is absolutely willing to be with us and to dwell with us and to work with us, even with all the... The mystery that generates and sustains the cosmos is not ashamed of our shame. Now, I want to be very clear what I mean by that, okay? I am not trying to say that Jesus doesn't care about sin. Jesus cares. Jesus hates things like adultery and deceit and incest and murder. Jesus hates all that, okay? But Jesus is not so ashamed of those things in human beings that he says, I can't work with you. I'm done with you. I can't forgive that. You're gross. No, Jesus says, I can work with that. If you will come to me with a humble heart, I can transform shame into a testimony of healing. You know, that reminds me of last week. I loved last week so much. Um, Thanksgiving Sunday, uh, where we had four people from our congregation share stories about how God has worked in their lives. And uh, if you weren't here for that, I really encourage you to go online and find the recording. You can watch the video of it, or you can listen to it on our, our podcast. One of the reasons that those stories were powerful is because those who shared them were honest about the parts of their own lives that could bring shame or embarrassment. They were honest about those parts of their lives, and yet their story was... God met me in my shame and he showed me grace and worked with me. 
purified me. He pulled me out of darkness and brought me into light. And now what was once bringing shame for me has been turned into a story that has power to bring hope. You know, forget family trees. When most of us think about our lives, we have parts of our stories that we'd rather not talk about. Like, metaphorically speaking, we have our own Tamars, Rahabs, Ruths, and Bathshebas. We have our own reasons to be excluded, our own reasons to feel humiliated, to feel embarrassed. Maybe those reasons are legitimate. Maybe they aren't. But either way, this morning, what I want you to hear, I want you to hear Jesus saying, I know about it all. I know about it all, and I want to transform it into his testimony of hope. I am not too ashamed of your shame to do that. I'm not too embarrassed by you to do that. You may think that you need to be an outsider, but I want to welcome you into the assembly of the Lord. Will you come in? I want to restore honor and dignity to you. All that I need from you is a humble heart willing to come to me. So in a little while, uh, the band is going to come up and play a song that I think is very fitting for after this message. And as they play, I just want you to think about what are, in your life, uh, the Tamars, Rahabs, Ruths, and Bathshebas, what are the things that you just want to hide, you, you want to pretend don't exist, and know Jesus, the Logos, he knows about those. He knows about them fully, and yet he is saying to you, I want to be associated with you. I want to have fellowship with you. You don't have to hide. You don't have to edit your story for me. I am powerful enough and good enough to work redemption out of all the mess in you and your family. I came from heaven to earth to do that. So it is a simple message this morning. Trust that Jesus knows it all and is still giving you that invitation. So receive it. Receive it in your heart. Amen? All right. Lord, I pray that if there are any of us here this morning who really need to hear about that invitation, I pray that you would make it personal for us, that you would help us to sense your spirit giving that invitation to know that it is real, uh, to know that you have done everything needed to bring us into fellowship uh, with you. We just have to say yes. So Lord, help us to say yes. The embarrassing and shameful parts of our lives be into testimonies of healing, power to bring hope. In Jesus' name, amen.